Well, Psalm 110, the book of Psalms. A little anecdote prior to reading this scripture and why it is important that the kings of earth, even though they have great power, understand their humanity. I was sitting in the pew earlier this evening getting ready to read and marking the places in my Bible that I needed to turn to, and I turned to the book of Ecclesiastes and I thought, I don't remember reading this this week. <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm not preaching from Ecclesiastes anymore. Um, yeah, we need a, a king who doesn't make mistakes uh, like that. We need a king who is perfect in righteousness and is not caught off guard by lapses of concentration. Psalm 110, though it is not the first psalm of this fifth book, I read that Wednesday night at prayer. And Psalm 107 is an outline of keeping covenant with God and the benefits and the blessings of a life that keeps covenant with the Lord. To keep covenant results in blessings. To violate that covenant is to bring cursings. Now the way that we look at this in light of Christ and his cross is that when we confess the answer to this question, with whom was the covenant of grace made... We confess that it was made with Christ and through Christ, the elect. That now, well, always, always, but especially clear since the cross of Jesus Christ, the manner in which we keep covenant with the Lord is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we come into Psalm 110, what we are seeing is the development of that idea prior to even Christ in the flesh. What we find is the gospel in seed form. David understood this not in full as we do, but he understood that in order for Israel, the church, the kingdom of Christ to endure, there must be a Lord, a king greater than he. So now I'll read from Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, Give us wisdom and discernment. Give us the gift that is your Holy Spirit that grants to us understanding of your holy and precious word. That it might be for us the means whereby a a wellspring of righteousness springs forth from our hearts. Help us to know our King, to know his kingdom what his city looks like, the walls and the palaces of it, 
Lord, take us on a tour even this evening of what your citizens are like, your children, the residents of your holy city. And of course, what you will accomplish by your mighty hand to bring about the resolution of enmity between the family of the seed of the woman and that of the serpent. And so make us a people who understand well what you are doing and what you have done. We pray this in your name. Amen. This evening we do begin a new series, and we focus upon the righteous foundation of the city of God. One of the things that develops in your mind as you become a better student of the scriptures, and children, give yourselves time. Um, you have your whole lives to learn the scriptures. And you ought to be a student of the scriptures your whole life. What happens with all of these beautiful word pictures, and there are many of them, and there are many varieties that describe the same things. Or they describe particular facets of the same one. Uh, We see this in the names that God gives to himself. Those names are not expressions of multiple personalities, They are expressions of his work in bringing about salvation for his people. They are sort of um, revelatory zip files that you, I think they still do zip files, double click on. And when you do that, it opens up an enormous repository of understanding of who God is and what he has done. And so when we speak of Lord Sabaoth, That name that we sing of in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It is the name attributed to the warrior God, God who rides forth in battle. In the same, we speak of Christ and his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And when we know him as prophet, priest, and king, and we see the prophet, the priest, and the king in the Old Testament, and these offices a signified, uh, or they are, they're sort of, well, I'm sorry, not signified, but type and shadow of the one who would come. We learn something of who Christ is when he does come, that he is a king like David. He is a, a prophet like Isaiah. He is a priest like Levi, but more like Melchizedek. This is what much of the New Testament is. The New Testament is a, a right exegesis of much of the raw material that is in the Old Testament. A lot of what Paul is doing in his epistles is an apologetic of a messianic, Christological, hermeneutic, or right interpretation of the Old Testament. This is how all of these pages that are often neglected in the church speak of the substance of those promises that is Christ Jesus. Now, David. David is the greatest of all the kings of Israel. David, though committing some heinous sin in his life, which is why we need a greater king even than David, understood, because God told him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be a king who sits forever on the throne, the Davidic throne, the line of David, that the Messiah the one whom all of Israel longed for, the seed of the woman, a child born to men, would sit upon that throne forever. And so though David was king, 
he understood that an even greater king must come and that he was only a line, a member of the line of the Davidic kinghood. And so tonight, as David reflects upon that king, I want to reflect on that as well. And I want to work through this psalm under these three headings. A greater king, a redeemed people, and a glorious kingdom. Now we see a greater king in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3 and 4, we see a redeemed people. And then verses 5 through 7, a glorious kingdom. Let's look at the first point, a greater king. The Lord... Yahweh, that's why your Bibles probably have it all caps. That is an indication that when we see that, we need to see Yahweh. That is the covenant God. God is the one who rules the heavens and the earth, the one who made covenant with men, said to my Lord. So what David means here in verse 1 is, the Father said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. There are glimpses of the acknowledgement of Trinity. Or that, at the very least, that the Messiah is David's own master. That he is greater even than David. And that David's son, as Christ says in the gospel, is David's Lord. And so God, Yahweh, says to my master, this is the king of a nation, the greatest nation in all the earth at that time, sit at my right hand. He is speaking of the honor and glory that will be, disposed, uh, that will be uh, d- given to the one who will come after David. There are glimpses of Revelation, of Psalm 45, of Psalm 48, of Psalm, well, we sang it here, 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There is built into the the promise of the Messiah or the messianic kingship that of dominion. David understood there is a kingdom, there is a king, and there is an enemy or enemies of that kingdom. We know this. In every great story where there is a great king, that king is great Because he has conquered his enemies and the enemies of his people. And the only way that a king can be great is that he has destroyed the enemies and he has brought peace. David did this. David did what Saul could not do. David did what the judges could not do. He brought peace. He brought peace. And all of these things, as I spoke earlier, when you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, all of these word pictures, these assimilies, associating this with that, begin to form this whole understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. David knows who the throne actually belonged to. Saul did not. Saul thought to take authority and the throne for himself, Solomon forgot for a time. And then very few kings after Solomon remembered. Some did. Some were brought to repentance. We have good King Hezekiah. We have Josiah and a few others, not many, none in the north. David understood that the Messiah would come in his own line. He didn't know when. But the result of this great kingship would be 
the establishment of a universal earthly kingdom. David worshipped at another's throne. This is what we learn from David. In fact, whenever we gather for worship, one of the things that Christ is doing in our hearts is he is laying to waste those little tiny thrones that we have been working on Monday to Saturday, right? The throne of self, of our own pleasures, of our own delights. We are to align those things with the the glory and honor of Christ. And so when we come to church, we are coming to a throne. There's a pulpit here. But we are coming to the throne of Christ. And what we are doing is we are coming into his midst and we are saying, we are your subjects, you are our king. And we hide in the shelter of his wing. Another word picture, like a hen covering her chicks. We are like sheep and he is the shepherd. We are the branches, he is the vine. He is the root of the stump of Jesse. David knew that the king of Israel was more than a mere man. And that God, again, we see that name, Yahweh, the covenant name of God in verse 2, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of his enemies, or your enemies. That the king would be a representative of the people of God and in covenant with God and men. David knew that the king, the true king, would be or must be more than just mere man. He is also greater than a mere earthly political figure, but he is instead God himself, worthy of fear and worship. This is what David is doing. He is worshiping. He is worshiping the one promised to come. And in this, David is exemplary, not just a worshiper, but a king paying homage to a greater king. In fact, the scripture speaks of the whole of God's people as a nation of royal priests. That is who we are. Can you imagine, and he got a lot of flack for this, Harry giving up his royalty so that he could sell his soul for celebrity in America? Not really much of a trade, although royalty is just now celebrity more than anything else. Can you imagine... Knowing that you are a a king and queen, a prince or princess in the kingdom of heaven, relinquishing that glorious title for the junk of earth. This is the great offense in the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? A loving father, great wealth, a promised inheritance, and the son despised it all. David was no prodigal in this way. David understood the glory of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words that we might know and be taught by them. We are. We are members of the kingdom of God. And as such, we are to see and worship the one who is the king. We are not king. And the end or the objective for the rule and reign of the Messiah is dominion. Look at verse 2. Ruling in the midst of your enemies. The world does not know this, but Reformation does not have to contend with Gaston County. Gaston County needs to contend with us. Now, what I mean by that is I don't want you to be puffed up and prideful, but you need to understand this. What the world has is nothing compared to the treasure that we have. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, even now we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
to show that this power is not from us, but it is from God. What the world is doing is they are fighting over the scraps of a kingdom that is in shambles. But what the church is doing is growing. It is on the rise. It is ever establishing its authority that is the authority of Christ Jesus, the king who is in our midst. And so David, in writing of the throne of Israel, writes of a greater king who will do greater things even than he did. Let's look at the second point, a redeemed people. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A kingdom cannot exist without a king, and a kingdom cannot exist without people. That was the King James I read from. The New King James, it says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. The kingdom of Christ will be filled with those who are irresistibly drawn to the throne. They shall be made willing. How is a man made willing, a woman, a child, to bow the knee to King Jesus? They have experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, David isn't using that language. That language, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration, Christ uses that language really for the, not for the first time, but he makes it very clear. Remember? To Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who should have known, who should have known Psalm 110, who should have read, your people shall be volunteers. Well, not in English. (laughs) They shall be made willing How do I enter into the kingdom of heaven? Christ says you must be born again. We are given new wills, that is, we are made willing by having our hearts transformed. And so if we look at the kingship of Christ, it is not only divine that we see in verse 1 and 2, but it is also a priestly kingship. The king makes his citizens And in this, he conquers in two ways. He conquers his people by graciously giving them new hearts, and he conquers the world in judgment. This is what the cross does. It brings all men. There is not a man, woman, or child that has ever lived that will not contend with the cross. It stands at the center of all human history. And every man, woman, and child will contend with what happened at the cross But in grace, what Christ does by his Holy Spirit is he sends his spirit out into the world as an envoy to the nations through the proclamation of the gospel by men who are called to preach. And he causes people to say, I want to be part of that kingdom. And how are we made volunteers? Maybe we should say we are voluntook, at least in the first part, right? But I don't want us to say that we are brought into the kingdom kicking and screaming. We are brought into the kingdom because Christ changes our desires. He renews our affections. Now, yes, there are times in our lives with Christ where our hearts must be sanctified, and there are times where we go kicking and screaming to repent of our idols. But where we come kicking and screaming 
there is need for repentance, obviously. But David is speaking of a kingdom of those whose hearts will be made new. Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. This is how the king shows his power. He allures us with the beauty of his holiness. And then this language from the womb of the morning. We speak of Christ as the firstborn of all creation. When I read this verse, verse 3, I think of a new day, dew on the grass. It's something new. The kingdom of Christ is, it is evergreen. It is always new. It is a kingdom filled with born again members, volunteers who have been made such because their hearts have been transformed by the power of his grace. That is how the kingdom of Christ is filled. So what that means is this. If the kingdom of Christ is filled by those who respond to the word of God by faith, which follows regeneration, right? Because we're Reformed Calvinists. Faith comes after regeneration. We lay hold of Christ after he lays hold of us. What that means is if we wish for the nations to lay hold of Christ, there is an important step that comes first, and that is the proclamation of the gospel of the messianic king and his new kingdom. But it is not just enough that he is a king. He is a priestly king. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn. That means he's made a promise and he will not relent. That means he will never change that promise or go back from it. God the Father has said of the Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That is, the Davidic divine king must also be one who is able to stand in the place between God who is judge of all the earth and a sinful people. That is how we are made new. It is because Christ in his priestly office have paid for the sins of his people once and for all and then has entered into the holy place and we follow him into that place. And what he has done is he, like Moses, leading Israel through the Red Sea, has made a way where we might enter into the presence of a holy God. And he is the forever priest. He is a divine king and he is a high priest. The glory, strength, power, and efficacy of his saving grace is tied directly to his identity. Who he is. He is God and man. Also what he has done. He has suffered once for the sins of his people and his promises cannot fail. Now, why the order of Melchizedek? Well, you've got to know who Melchizedek is. And I'll say this, there's some mystery about who Melchizedek is. We do know this. He is the greatest figure in the Old Testament. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than David. Because his authority precedes even that of Abraham, the father of the faithful. And in fact, it is to Melchizedek that Abraham pays tribute. This notion of Melchizedek And the understanding that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that is a priestly office that is greater than the patriarchs. What David understood and what we ought to understand and what the writer of Hebrews understood is this, that the central figure in the whole of Revelation 
is not a mere man, but it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And his authority, his efficacious work upon the cross, it spans what we call the Catholic Church. In order for Abraham to be covered, there had to be a priest that covered him first. Christ is that priest. The reason why Abraham believed and that belief was counted to him as righteousness was because there was a priest in heaven that answered for his sins. Christ, the promise, is greater than David. He is greater than the Levites. He is greater than Abraham. He is greater than any and all of us. He is the centerpiece of revelation. And he is the one who brings about a citizenry that is made willing and cheerful to worship and to labor because he has given us new hearts. There is no kingdom like the kingdom of Christ. And your prayer ought to be as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, Lord, give me a heart that longs, that desires, that makes me a willing volunteer to serve and worship you. Thirdly, it's a glorious kingdom. Now here David is speaking of himself. The Lord, that is his master, is at your right hand. He is speaking of the Davidic or just the authority of Israel. The Lord is at your right hand. It is a, it's a reference in some fashion. It follows Psalm 16, verse 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. That is, I will spend time contemplating his lordship. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. David is saying that the kingly office of the church, of the chosen people of God, will persevere because the Messiah is right there. In fact, when we come to the Lord's table and we speak of his spiritual presence with us, we often think of Christ in his death and his sufferings in Christ commands us, think of my death until I come. But we also think of Christ's resurrected and glorious presence. And he's not just present with us when we eat the bread and the wine. He is uniquely present. But he is not only present then. He is present with us all the time. The scriptures speak of the angels who uphold us, of Christ who holds us in the palm of his hand, and no one can take him out of his hand, and no one can take us out of his hand or the Father's hand. And so what we know of even the weak church, for even at times in the history of Israel, they were weak. Christ was with them. Christ shows his strength through weak vessels. As I said already from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in fact, why don't we go there? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to read that in its broader context. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, But we, as the saints, the church, have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body 
the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that in the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now I said this morning that Christ is no longer weak, and he is not, but we carry about in us the death of Christ in our sufferings because it is the death of Christ that preaches, and it is the death of Christ that saves. And so until we are raised imperishable in the last day, of which we are now but not yet, And until we are members of the church triumphant, we will carry about in us, for the sake of those who are out there, the death of Christ. And it should be in our mouths and it should be in our hearts. But we know this at all times. Though the vessel may be crushed, and it may be simple, the glory of the treasure that is within it will transform the nations. And so there is this glorious kingdom that will come because Christ is beside us. And the result of Christ in us, with us, is that he will bring to nothing the kings and kingdoms of this earth. Where is Rome? Where is Rome? They're nothing. The Colosseum is a ruin. It's beautiful ruin, <laughs> but it's a ruin. Christ will execute kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies, as we sang, heaps and heaps of bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He will do in a very visible and manifest way what he has always done with Israel and through his church. And that is to bring to nothing the nations of the earth. That through the ministry of Christ's kingship, he will bring judgment upon the nations. In Isaiah chapter 2, we read, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. When we read of judgment, we always think what? Guilty. But Christ also exercises judgment by giving to those who lack judgment renewed hearts. There is this theory that democracies don't go to war with other democracies. Well, we'll see how well that plays out. What is more true is that those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells know peace. And even we struggle at times. Christ is a good judge. He is the only good judge. In fact, who would you have judge the nations? What man could we elect to fill such a high and holy office? In fact, there is but one good judge. And in his judgment, he brings men to himself 
And they are either in him or not, and that is up to him. But he is the one who chooses. And then in here in verse 7, at the close, there is an allusion to Judges chapter 7. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of Gideon. And as God was sort of gleaning and paring back the army so that Gideon would end up with only 300 men, uh, one of the ways in which God would, uh, was sort of cordoning off some of those men who would fight was he brought them to the brook, and depending on how they drink, they would be chosen or not. And the result of that is that Gideon ended up with 300. And then God said to Gideon, the reason why I'm giving you 300 men and not the 10,000 that you began with is to show that when Israel triumphs over the wicked nations of this earth and this particular idolatrous nation that was filled with 100,000 soldiers was that you can never say, look at what we did. That the manner in which Christ fulfills kingly triumph is a way in which only Christ will receive glory. He will be refreshed. He will look to the nations and he will conquer them. And we must say, greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. What if the Lord was not on our side? What it means is this as a church of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there is ever an occasion, either theologically or in practice, that we are not allied with Christ and we are not proclaiming his gospel, we need to tremble in fear and say, we need to repent. Christ is leading forth his church, that is the kingdom, his kingdom, into battle. And what he will do through weak and impoverished means is he will bring to nothing the wisdom, the strength, and the wealth of the nations. And all of them will come to him. The great example of this is not David, but David's son Solomon, when the queen of Sheba came and paid tribute to his wisdom. Even she knew. She wanted what he had. The church possesses the wealth of the nations. Because the church sits right next to the king of heaven and earth. We have Christ, if I can say it this way, in our corner, at our right hand. David was not favored for any other reason than the extraordinary grace of God. We have been chosen for no reason than divine favor. But we can confess that with Christ we shall do valiantly. And so as we move through these psalms, let us remember who our king is, what kinds of people he is making of us, and what the end of the kingdom is. It is glory, it is victory, it is strength, and it is power. Christ is our divine king. He is our priestly king. He is our warrior king. With him we shall do valiantly, and with him we shall know victory. Let's pray.